Parables are like onions. They're like onions, really are. They need peeling away. Um, I think I grew up thinking parables were a way of making hard ideas easy. And Jesus doesn't say that. In fact, um, when he does the parable of the sower, and they go, why do you, why'd you do that? Why do you talk in stories? He says that, that people, he quotes the Old Testament, and Jesus says that um, so people will be ever hearing and never knowing. He, he, he knows that you and I, um, we're, we are really bad listeners. We're really bad listeners. And so he has to create something that makes us dig in and explore, want to peel away and find out more. If he could just offer it to us on a plate, we would just kind of go and throw it away. So, so Jesus constructs something that means that we peel away, we keep looking. There is more levels, more layers. And so um, as we kind of do the parables over the summer, we're actually meant to be looking for more. And actually an obstacle to kind of understanding the parables is knowing them. We've kind of formed our opinion. We've kind of sort of said, well, that's, that's about, I've done that one, done. Next one. But actually, if he really is trying to make us kind of explore and understand something, there is more than what you know to it. And so I'd like you to do something for me. I want you to think about, we're going to look at the parable of the Good Samaritan. I'd like you to think about what you think the Good Samaritan story is all about. And I'd like you in your mind to tear it up and throw it away. And come to it fresh, like... Jesus' listeners would have done. They'd never heard it before. This was a brand new story. And look at it through their eyes. One of the, the privileges of my job is, to, um, uh, is I go into school and I tell these stories to people who have never heard them before. And, um, and what we hear back is mind-blowing. We just hear just extraordinary comments and ideas that are a little bit disturbing sometimes, and sometimes you think, gosh, you should be a preacher. How, how did you get there? So we're, we're, um, this parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan, since September, uh, Step has taught it over 40 times in school. So that's kind of 1,300 young people we've sat with, kind of just playing with this idea and talking about it and hearing back for them. Some of them say um, it's about morality and ethics, some of them say it's about nationalism. Some of them say it's about racism. Some of them say it's about religious prejudice. Some of them say it's an, uh, um, an analogy of Jesus. We, we have heard so many different views about this story. So I, I might draw on a little bit of what some 14-year-olds you know, have been teaching me about it. One of the things that really struck me was this year. Do you, do you remember when... Um, Extinction Rebellion kind of protested near the M25 and it got shut down a bit. So, so I was teaching on parables that day. And I, I went into school and I went through and worked through with these amazing 30 young smart people, the, the, this story. And, uh, and we go on to a slide of what Martin Luther King thinks about this, this story. And Martin Luther King says, he calls it the great reversal. 
He says that um, as the um, as the priest and as Levi walk by and see this man or woman broken on the side of the road, they ask themselves, "If I stop to help them, what will happen to me?" And Martin Luther King says, and then the good Samaritan comes along, and he sees this person by the side of the road, and he reverses the question and says, "If I don't stop to help them, what will happen?" then. So we put this slide up, one of the students reads it out, and then they all discuss it. And then this one kid who had been late to the lesson because his trip to school had been disrupted by the, by, by the motorway being kind of slowed down slightly, he puts his hands up and says, so if this is about helping others, no matter what the cost is to you, and the world is in a really bad state, does this mean that you should do things that, that cost you, like might put you at risk? And I was like, that's a hard one to answer in school because you don't want to encourage kids to do something dangerous, but that's a good way of reading their story. So I said, that's a good way of reading a story. He said then, why aren't all Christians in Extinction Rebellion? So, sorry? And he was like, if, if we're really worried about our planet... Why, why aren't we doing things that cost us? And I was like, uh, I, I need to shut this down right now. You know, what, we, what? and I felt really, really uncomfortable. But interesting how a 14-year-old reads a story that we have heard so many times, and then he's like, well, if this is true, and we care about our planet, we need to do something. So I'm not saying whether I or anyone else should agree with that perspective, but isn't it fascinating when you come to a story for the first time and you try and make sense of it in your context, how it should challenge you? And my prayer, my hope is, as you come to this story for the first time, as you've ripped up everything you know about it, you have the privilege of maybe seeing it slightly different. So I'm going to share kind of my perspective on it, but my job is to lead you in worship, and your job is to look for Jesus and allow him speak to you. So let's get peeling. Take some layers off. And so to understand this parable, we need to understand the context. So we're going to start um, in our Bibles at Luke 10, 25, which is where the story starts. So if you've got your Bibles or your devices, have a look, but they're going to appear on the screen as well. So Luke 10, 25 says this. On one occasion, an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So this expert of the law, we might call them a lawyer, stood up to test, or as many kids in school say, trap Jesus. Interesting little thing. He, he appears be trying to distract Jesus. We don't know if he's like, in, he's that annoying person that when you get in a good conversation, sidetracks it all, takes you off target, and you're like, <gasps> we, he appears to be that person. And um, he actually is, is inviting Jesus into a popular debate, debate of the time. So we have popular debates. We have Brexit. We have the environment. Everyone has an opinion on it. Everyone think, has a different view. He's inviting Jesus into a divisive conversation. You see, at the time, 
there was a, a debate going on about eternity. Now, one side say, when you die, you die. That's it. There was another side that said, when you die, there is a life after. The one side that said, when you die, you die, said, so the debate really is about whether you have um, a life full of meaning while you're here, a long life, an eternal life, or you have a short, meaningless life. That was the debate that Jesus was being invited into. And um, uh, so when Jesus says, you, you know, I'm a, I give you life and life in all its fullness, he is stepping into a debate that everyone was having. Everyone had an opinion. Everyone had a, a kind of perspective on it. It was divisive. So Jesus has been sidetracked, it would appear, into something that everyone is talking about. So what do you think? He's kind of asking Jesus, what are you promoting of value? What is the most important thing to you? We don't know if it really is a test. The text says he's testing him, he's trapping him. But we'll find out quite quickly, this becomes almost like a discipleship question. So um, Jesus, we're going to read on now and see what, what Jesus says. So 26 to 28, Jesus says this, what is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? Really good way of avoiding a trap is to say nothing. Put the ball back in their court. And the, 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 the expert in the Lord, he answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Really, really interesting answer. You see, he quotes the Ten Commandments, the beginning of the Ten Commandments, and then he zooms all the way to Leviticus 19, and he quotes one line out of Leviticus 19. In between those two, Exodus 20 and Leviticus 19, which, let me show you how much of the, the Bible is it is, as it helps a bit. There you go. So... This much. Is all laws, instructions, how to live. When Moses started setting them out. So, so he's kind of saying to Jesus, well, actually, it's from the beginning of them to the end of them. You, 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 you love God with all of that. You need to get them all right. Every page, you need to get it all sorted. Really, really interesting answer. You've got, to, you've got to be perfect. You've got to follow all of these statutes, beginning to end. And um, Jesus answers this. So we'll read um, verse 29. Uh, 28. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you shall live. So if you manage to like fulfill, do all those every day, every moment, then you will have a life full of meaning. Pretty tough call. And I think suddenly this young man that's trying to distract Jesus with a test goes, uh, oh no, I didn't really expect you to say that I have to follow every bit of this. And, and so he, he goes on, let me read what he goes on. So do this and you will live. Verse 29 says, 
but he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So he goes all the way to the end to this one bit in Exodus um, 19 and says, well, who, who's my neighbor? But he wanted to justify himself. Think back maybe four weeks, and Mark talks about that word, didn't he? He talked that, we're, the, that we are justified, we are sanctified, we are glorified. We are justified by what Jesus did on the cross. But this young man doesn't want that. He wants to justify himself. So if we want to stand right before God on our own, we need to fulfill, keep all of those. And he's starting to feel a little bit awkward. And he seems to be a little bit awkward about one particular bit, and that is about who is my neighbor. Who, who is it not that, that I should love? Who is it that I should love? Who is it that I should, should treat as myself? Who is that specifically? And I think in this moment, we see something of who Jesus is. This young man has come along. He's tried to distract Jesus. He's asked that kind of awkward conversation that drags him into a popular debate. And then he's kind of fallen a cropper of Jesus asking him questions. And he suddenly realized, oh my goodness, I can't do that. So he wants to justify the thing he's struggling with. And, and, and in this moment, we see Jesus for who he is in all his beauty and all his glory. Rather than being frustrated that he's been thrown off track, he sees the one in front of him. He sees the you and the me, and he delves into that situation. And so um, Jesus actually goes and explores that one line for this young man. So if we could put up the Exodus passage, we're going to look at that. So the Exodus passage actually is another big debate. It's a debate about Samaria and about neighbors, and it's a debate um, about um, the, the, the scripture says, if it comes up, that we, that we should, let me read it for you, because it's not going to find it. It says this, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone amongst your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against any one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord your God. So he's basically gone, well, that, that text says, I only need to care for my people, maybe my family, maybe my neighbors, maybe the people in my tribe, which doesn't sound very Jesus, which is what he's probably trying to catch him out of. And so Jesus is like, how do I expand this person's worldview? Because Jesus' call to us is to go to all nations in Matthew 28. So he wants to expand this young man's view. So Jesus looks at this text and thinks, how do I help this young man? How do I expand his worldview? And so he tells a story. So we finally got the context on the story. So let me read you the story as Jesus tries to help just one person with his obstacle to understanding what Jesus and who Jesus is all about. And I think Jesus does that with each of us. He finds our obstacle and he begins to put things and moments in our path so that we can overcome it. Trevor said um, in his, um, his talk last week that um, Jesus is more interested in your character than your comfort. And I think that's dead right. 
You, you are the center of his attention. And many of the things that come your way is because Jesus is trying to get rid of your obstacles. That's what he's doing with this young man, and that's what he's doing with you and me often. And this story shows how he does it with a young man. So, let's read it. And in reply to the question, who is my neighbor? Jesus says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he falls into the hands of robbers. They strip him of his clothes and they beat him and went away, leaving him for dead. A priest happens to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by onto the other side. And so to a Levite, when he came to the place that he saw the man, he passed onto the other side. But then a Samaritan, as he traveled, came with the man, saw man the man was. When he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and he bandaged his wounds. He poured oil on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for the extra expense you may have. Interesting story to do with someone that's trying to distract you. So I I thought we'd just go through it a little bit and explore them. In every kind of parable, you're kind of meant to ask yourself, who am I in this? Who or where is God? And what is it trying to say? Let me peel an air of the onion. So um, let's look at the characters in the story. So we've got, the first one is this poor victim that is, um, uh, has taken a shortcut from Jerusalem to Jericho. It says he's gone down, but Jerusalem is there. Jericho is there. Bit interesting. Going down is because Jerusalem is like standing on the top of Snowdon, and Jericho is like being at the bottom. So it's not going down the map, as it's up the map, but it's going down this huge incline. I don't think it was as big as Snowdon, so it wasn't a mountain, but it was going down. And it was called the Way of Blood. It was a shortcut from Jerusalem to Jericho. And you could have gone all the way around and you would have been safe. But if you took the shortcut, you cut through Samaria, and Jewish people and Samaritans, they hated each other. In fact, it were the, the parents encouraged their children to spit at each other and throw stones. The kind of the animosity in that space was like that. So we can't grasp that. But as soon as we talk about the victim in this story, everyone thinks, my goodness, why would he do that? He he must have been desperate or stupid. That's the only reason you would go the way of blood, because it was downhill and there were robbers and and people wanting to get you all the way. And it's going through Samaria where Jewish people thought, they're horrible. And so let's give the victim a name in this. So... It's a choice they have made. It's not that they've done it unwillingly. I know many of us, we've been victims through no fault of our own. This isn't that kind of person. This is someone that has chosen to, to, to make a careless choice in their haste or in their lack of consideration. So let's call them careless, just for a lack of things, as I know some of us are victims and it's not our fault and it is not fair and it is not right. But in this story... This person has chosen this. They've walked down this. They've intentionally gone this way. 
And so the, 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 this victim called careless or um, reckless, he, he walks the way of blood, knowing what's going to happen. And, um, uh, and what happens, happens. I wonder if you can relate to him at all, or her at all, where you, you've made choices, careless choices. Maybe you think you are immortal. I know I, I used to say as a teenage Christian, I'm immortal until God wants to take me home. Which is true, but it also is an interesting attitude to life. Or maybe we've got so used to our kind of sin that goes on in our life that we're a bit careless around it. That's okay. Remember Mark talking about his snake that you get out and you look at it and you pet it? You're being a bit careless even having a snake. Sorry if you have a snake. So it's careless. So our victim has made a choice. Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you have done careless things sometimes. If that's true then you're, you're in this story. It relates to you in some ways. We can acknowledge this. And Scripture calls us. Um, it says that um, even though you are young, don't let them look on you, but be an example in word and speech and deed. So the call of Scripture is not to be careless, but to be an example. So maybe we fall short of that, and that's okay. That's why this story is so amazing, because it means we're in the story, and we look to the end to see what happens. So maybe you relate to the victim. But there's, there's another group of people in this story, aren't they? And they're the robbers. And we're meant to ask ourselves, are we in this story? Well, I'm in a room full of lovely Christians, so there wouldn't be any robbers in here. Or would there? Do we in our deeds sometimes, you know, do things that rob other people? Maybe we're not the boss we hoped we would be. Or maybe we're not the parent we had hoped we would be. And for our deeds, we kind of steal things. We say things. Or maybe you've just been a victim of a robber. Maybe you work with a robber that kind of um, is abrupt and callous. Should we give the robber a name? Should we call them callous? Some of us can be a bit callous sometimes, especially when it's just hitting the summer and we're tired. I'm tired. I need my summer holidays. Hence me wearing my shirt. I am convincing myself I am on holiday to get rid of my callousness. The shirt doesn't work. But some of us can be a bit callous sometimes. And if we are, then we're in this story as well, aren't we? And, um, and Scripture's call to us, actually, is to, to um, uh, live in a way that it invites a question. Let me read it to you. One Peter three fifteen um, says. One Peter three fifteen um, uh, says, um, "Always be ready with a with an answer for the faith you have, for the hope you have." Well, why would they even ask us unless we we are such an amazing different boss or colleague that they go, "What? Why are you so different? What? What?" Why do you live like that? And so the call on us is to be so different that people ask the question and then we're ready with an answer. So, um, uh, so maybe we're in the story. Some of us can be a bit callous sometimes and some of us, I know, aren't. Who else is there in this story? Well, there, there is the, the priest who walks along the, the road. That's their job. They are the religious best of the best. 
Now, we know he's going from Jerusalem to Jericho, so he's finished work. He's done a stint at work. He is taking the shortcut home. Not very wise, but he's cutting along, thinking his religion will save him. And um, uh, he crosses over. Now, some narratives tell you he crosses over because it's against his religion to touch a body with blood in it. If he, if he touches the body in blood with it, he needs to go back to the temple and he needs to get cleansed and he can't do his job for a while. And so he crosses over for the good of everyone else. But what if we gave his, him the name conformity, not conformity, convenience or comfort? What if he said he was crossing over because it was against his religion, but actually, I just want to get home after work. This is just hard. I just, I just need to get home. And though he is the best of the best and he's on his way home, he just wants to get home. I, was, um, uh, I read the story a while back in school, and on my way home, I realised we didn't have enough spices for the meal that I was preparing, and I went up to the co-op on the way home just before I got back. And, um, uh, uh, and I, I needed those spices to, to cook the meal. And as I went in, I got my spices, started to queue up, and these two gentlemen in front of me kind of put, they, they had a, a, a four-pack of beers, I think, and they put three back on the shelf and then stood in the queue and bought something small. And I was like, I think, I think they've stolen something. I don't know. I think they have. And then they got, and then they paid for the chewing gum or whatever it was. And I'm standing in the queue with the three beers and the one missing there. And I'm like, Kate's going to kill me if I, if I say anything. Because if I, if I say anything, then they're going to ring the police. The police are going to come. It's not your fault. <laughs> the, 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 the police are going to come. I'm going to be an hour at least dealing with, you know, the police and da-da-da. Or maybe I didn't see that. And so I go and pay and I leave. You can throw me off the stage now if you want. On the way from home, work, home from work and out of comfort, I decide to do nothing. And I go home. So I'm in this story, seriously in this story, and it bugs me as parables are meant to. They're meant to eat away and kind of get you to think about it out of comfort of thinking, gosh, I don't want to put dinner back an hour, I allowed another person, another shop to suffer. So I'm in this story. So the priest crosses over. Matthew 16 says, take up your cross and follow me. Discipleship is meant to be disruptive, and I chose to avoid the disruption and just get the spices. And so I, I'm in this story. And there's another person, isn't there? There, there is the Levite. By, by, by right of birth, this person gets to work in the temple. And, um, uh, and they're heading home. They actually work for the priest. So the priest is a bit further ahead. They've probably just packed everything away and just half an hour behind. They've done all the donkey work. And they're following behind. They see someone on the side of the road. And they see the priest further down the hill, wandering off. And they think, why, why didn't they do that? Why didn't they help? What, what's going on there? And should we give the Levi a name? If we've given the victim a name called carelessness and we've given the robbers callous and the priest 
um, we're going to call comfort or convenience. Let's call the Levite conformity, shall we? And um, he thinks, you know what, they didn't do it, and I, I work for them, and I, I, I'm just going to cross over and carry on as well. And so they conform to an opinion they don't even know if the other person has. Have you ever done that? I think some of the worst things we've ever done in our lives often are bowing to an opinion that someone else hasn't even expressed. We just think that they think that, and we dictate the direction of our life based on what we think someone else thinks. We haven't even got the evidence. And so they conform, they cross over. And Scripture's command on that, it's, it's, it's bar on that, is to be conformed to the likeness of Christ. Yeah. Be formed, conformed to the likeness of Christ. So we shouldn't conform to the priest. We shouldn't conform to anyone else but Jesus. And in this story, we're given the bar of where to conform to. And so the Levite crosses over and bows to a view he doesn't even know the other person has and carries on. So we've got one other person in this story. And so the good Samaritan, remember Samaritans are the enemy. They are a religious enemy. They are a national enemy. They probably were, there was conflict over race as well. So on every level, this is the baddie. Boo, hiss. So Jesus introduces this new enemy. And, And there's an enemy, but a very different enemy. This character is the enemy of carelessness. He is the enemy of callousness. He is the enemy of comfort. And he is the enemy of conformity. But he is not our enemy. And the good Samaritan begins to walk down the road. Now, the good Samaritan hasn't made a bad choice going down the road of blood. The good Samaritan is intentionally heading down this perilous route with one person in mind and to rescue them. And this this enemy of callousness and carelessness and comfort and conformity, he, he heads down the road and I think you can work out who he is and it's not you and me. We are not him. He's coming looking for those things to get them out of the way, to get them out of our lives and he comes to rescue us in our victimness. And he heads down the road, and he looks for us. And when he finds us on the side of the road, it says that he, he, he bandages us up. This isn't just a ticket into heaven. The good Samaritan, our Jesus, isn't just about bringing a little bit of healing. It's not just about bringing a rescue. It is about... He is about taking away all the obstacles that keep us from him, which he is doing for just one lad in one story that makes it into our Bibles, but actually shows how he treats each one of us. And so he heads down the road, he doesn't cross over, and he begins to heal him up. And he puts him on his back of his donkey, and he pays for everything he's done in the past, everything he's done in the present, and everything he will do in the future. That's literally what he says. He says, you know, take care of everything. And so our Jesus, our good Samaritan, pays for all those things. 
The story is really, I think, not about moral ethics, though it's got something about moral ethics about in it. This story is about your nation and your race, but it's more than that. It is about a rescue plan from heaven of God entering a perilous world to rescue us from our obstacles. And so he picks him up, he puts him on the donkey, he takes him and he pays for everything past and present. And then Jesus says, after telling a story about himself, he says to this young man, he says, um, verse 37, let me read it. It says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor the man who fell into the hands of the robbers. And the expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus then told him, go and do likewise. Can we get the band up? Is that okay? Thank you. So we see in this sweet little moment our Jesus that we sing to that has told this elaborate, amazing story to the audience of one saying, I don't know why you want to justify your callousness or your carelessness or your elevating your comfort over everything else or, or why you keep conforming and doing what everyone else thinks. You know, I, I don't know why you do that. But I do know my job is to come and pick you up, heal you, pay for everything you've done in the past, everything you've done now and everything you'll do in the future. Because I know it will change you. So we could argue this story is just about being good and having good ethics, but it's not really. In fact, uh, based on my story of just going home from work that one day, Christians aren't good. We're, we're, we're not good, but we are grateful. We are so grateful that God comes and walks that perilous route for you and me. And so there is an inspiration to be good. There is inspiration. Jesus says, go and do likewise. So once we've grasped the immensity of what Christ did for us, then yes, it does affect our ethics. But firstly, we need to grasp what was done for us. Once we understand that, that Christ walked down that perilous route to get rid of those obstacles, then we begin to think, right, being a Christian is actually about out of gratitude beginning be a good Samaritan to others. Thank you very much.